I'm one of these guys who actually doesn't have a bucket list. There's not a whole list of things that I feel like I need to do before God calls me home. I'm actually really enjoying the things he's called me to do right now. And if he gives me however many more days, I'm sure there'll be things that I can uh, fill it up with in due time. But one thing that I would like to do at some point is to visit Spain. I've never been there, been able to see some parts of Europe in many years past now. But Spain has an intriguing kind of part in, in my heart. And not least of which, because it is a place of pilgrimage. Some of you have heard of the Camino de Santiago, literally the way of St. James. It is, a pilgrimage, it is a pilgrimage route that saints have traveled since medieval times. It, according to church legend or tradition, it is where the bones of St. James, one of the sons of Zebedee, are buried. And it starts in France and goes for about 500 miles. And it's a pilgrimage because along the way, there are holy places, whether those are monasteries or other churches or particular places of prayer. It's a pilgrimage in the sense that as people go along that way, they go in contemplation and thinking about their lives in, in some degree of penitence for some, according to that Catholic tradition. And there's just something about that that, that heart of pilgrimage that, that intrigues me, that, I'd, that I would love to participate in. Uh, not for the whole 500 miles, probably unlikely. Uh, there is a biking option, uh, although I think that's sort of defeating the purpose. But the Camino de Santiago uh, in the northern part of Spain kind of grabs my attention. And I also think it's a fitting way to understand this new series that we're starting in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a lot of things. There's a fair amount of uniqueness within the book of Hebrews as you kind of think about some of its elements. But one of the things that stands out as a theme is it is a, a story of pilgrimage. It speaks of the journey of the saints. Many of us know about the famous uh, you know, chapter 11 of Hebrews, the hall of faith. But if you think about that, those people that are described, Abraham and Moses and Rahab, they are on a pilgrimage. They are on a sacred journey. Their lives are portrayed. And the whole effort or emphasis of that chapter is because they saw a country that had not yet, they had not yet been to. It is a heavenly one. And so there's this idea of pilgrimage, which is so central to Hebrews. And that's why we're calling this the, the heart of pilgrimage, this series of Hebrews, because we want to understand in this time, in this era, what it means for us to be on that. And Hebrews is such an interesting book to help us do that because it starts with the, the beginning of all our pilgrimages. It starts with the fact that Jesus died for us and he was raised for us, but is written to, to Jewish believers who are well-versed in the theology of their day. They knew the Old Testament covenants. They knew what uh, that meant, and they were, they'd given their lives to the Lord, but they didn't understand how all these things now fit together. Is Jesus a high priest? He is a high priest, but what does that mean? Is Jesus a king? He is a king, but, but what does that look like uh, since the, they were a conquered people? There's a whole discourse on the order of Melchizedek in Hebrews. What is that about? I mean, if you're a young Christian, you probably skipped over those passages. Like, I, we're not even sure what that thing's about. So there are a lot of things within Hebrews that I think help us if we're going to lay hold of them over the course of our weeks together in this epistle. They will help us understand Jesus as high priest, Jesus as king, Jesus as the one who helps us along our way in our time of pilgrimage.
that uh, we're following as main text the lectionary. So you can see those if you've got a book of common prayer, we'll put them up on the website as well. But the text that was read by Jason, uh, I'm going to look at the last few verses that speaks to the Lord's humanity. I don't know what your first thought was when you got up this morning about the Lord, but probably wasn't. You know, I wonder what it means that Jesus is actually human. But that's good because we're going to talk about that right now. Let me, let's read the text. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them fully, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So the starting point is what Jesus has already done, but the author is is drawing us into this fact that Jesus is fully human. You know the theological formation. He is fully human, and he's fully divine. What does it mean to be fully human? Well, it means to be as we are, flesh and blood. It means to be born of a certain uh, mother and a father and means to be born in a time and a place. It means to be in an era. And it, you know, it means life on this planet and, and, in, this, and in, the, in, you know, in Jesus' day. The author is trying to make sure that we know that Jesus is like us in every way. He, saw, he, he got to experience the good parts of creation, and he went through hard, the hard fallen aspects of creation. Always, he lived his life here on earth as we live it now under the shadow of death. But why does Hebrews make such a point of the fact that Jesus is human? What, what is it trying to tell us? I think there's a few things that stand out. First one is if Jesus wasn't human, then we could not be forgiven. His humanity is fundamentally central to what his work was for us on the cross. Second one we'll look at is Jesus wasn't human. We would actually not know what love is. Everybody has their own notion of love. You've got your favorite songs that might sort of encourage you along that way. But love is defined by by what Christ did for us. And we would not know the depth of true love without his humanity. We'll explore that. And then finally... If Jesus wasn't human, we would, not, we would be in danger of not finishing this earthly life, this earthly journey to the heavenly city that we are called to. So let's just kind of take those in turn. If Jesus wasn't human, we would not be forgiven. We would not have salvation. How does that work? Well, you know, the scripture says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. In, in the Old Testament covenant of how God atoned for sin, the sin that people committed created a death, a spiritual death between us and God. And the only way that death could be atoned for was through the death of another living creature. God ordained it so that animals would be a part of that. The whole Jewish faith and temple experience is one of sacrificing animals for the sins of the people. Life had to be given for life. That was God's sense of justice. And so when Jesus comes He gives his life as a ransom for all of us. He is the sacrifice. And as we explore Hebrews together, it will really talk in some detail about what that means, the full implication of that. 
That'll be for some later weeks. But right now, it's important to see that if Jesus wasn't fully human, how could he truly die? He had to be human. Paul calls, when Paul's talking about this, he talks about the first Adam through whom all sin came. And then Jesus is the second Adam. But he can only be the second Adam if he is truly like us, made like us in every way, except without sin. And so if he doesn't die on our behalf, how is it that we can be saved? We cannot. And so, you know, that's, I, I don't want us to just sort of camp there, like that's a really interesting theological point, because it's more than that. There's a response. I think one of the practical responses is that, that we can enjoy the forgiveness that God has given us through Jesus, who offered himself up on the cross. We don't have to listen anymore to the enemy's accusations, but we can walk in that, that freedom. Like, but the enemy wants to keep working on us. He is the accuser of our souls, isn't he? He says that, oh, yeah, you've been forgiven, but you still do those old things. Like, and he just sort of, whatever sins were, are still in our life that, are, that God's still working on, he brings them up over and over again. It's like he's creating his own playlist of our life. And he's like, okay, you keep doing that. I'm going to add that to the playlist. And that one over there, I'm going to add that to the playlist. Pretty soon he's got our whole playlist. And when we do something wrong, he pushes play. And we hear these songs. I don't know what your songs would be. I hear some common ones, I hope. The song that the enemy plays, you could have done better. Or angry once again. Or nobody understands you. Things that the enemy consistently beats us over the head with. And Jesus has forgiven us those things. And his humanity says that he was, made him the perfect sacrifice. So we don't need to listen to the enemy's continued accusations. We can rather hear the Lord's playlist. Songs like Forgiven for All Time. Or My Grace is Sufficient for You. And a special one for couples. You were right and I am sorry. But, you know, I don't know what the playlist is that the enemy is working on you on. I don't know. But, but to understand how the Lord helps us, he, he says, I've already covered it. There's no reason going over plowed ground. Know that walk in that forgiveness. Confess that if you need to confess, but walk in it, embrace it. The second reason that Jesus had to be human is that if he wasn't human, we would not know what love is. As I said, we can sort of think about it. We can have our own kind of aspect of it. It has colors. It has songs. It has, I, I don't know what, what, how you would describe love from your perspective. But Jesus reveals his love by what he did for us, by specifically his suffering for us. Because the suffering reveals the great cost of sin. We're, we often just downplay sin and its consequences. We don't think it's a big deal. But Jesus' whole passion and his going to the cross on our behalf is to reveal how horrendous, how awful it truly is. Its hideousness cannot be hidden any longer by what Jesus, and Jesus exposes it by his road to Calvary. And because as a human, with all its frail, with all his frailty and all his, you know, all the all the things that just go with being human, the, the, the fact that we suffer pain, the fact that uh, there, there's, we're, that we just are capable of suffering, capable of truly being hurt. He goes through all of that for us, and out of that, he shows us what love means. You know, it's one thing to say God is love, and that, again, that can be kind of a theological thing, but it's another thing to say, no, here's what love is in action. 
John in his epistle says, don't say that you, you can't say that you love God whom you haven't seen if you're actually not loving people whom you have seen. Love has this human aspect if it's really to be of God. It's not just up here. It's not just up in the heavens. It's sourced from the spirit. It's manifested by Jesus and his humanness, his suffering specifically reveals just how much we are loved how much he suffered. He knew, as, as the text says, that we are under the shadow of death. He knew that, that people, that all of us whom he died for were under slavery and by their fear of death. And he broke the enemy's grip on that by what he suffered and how he died. Now, the third thing, if Jesus wasn't human, we would be in danger of not finishing this journey, finishing this life. Remember, the, the last verse that, that Jason read says, for, he, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And another part that I read earlier, he said he's fully human in every way in order that we might, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. We need somebody who gets us, somebody who understands the challenges, somebody that was there with us. We need a guide who's been there before in this life so that we can trust and be alongside of him. Don't, I mean, would you take a guide that had never been on the trail that you wanted to go? Would you go down a river with a river guide and it's like, you know, this is my first time. Yeah, I hope it works out. I mean, by the way, if you haven't been on a, on a river rafting trip and a whitewater rafting trip, uh, particularly relatively new to the state, hope you get the opportunity. It's been a little drought oriented over the last few years, so that could be a tough, but if you do, there's some beautiful rivers, and when you go, I can remember going on a, on a whitewater rafting trip, I'm like, how tough can this be? You go, you know, you, you get the brochure, look at the website, they tell you to show up at this place, and it's a raft about eight, it'll hold about eight people, nice big sturdy rubber raft, the guide is smiling, they look like they know what they're doing, the person who kind of booked the tour they're smiling because they're not going to be on the raft with you. And they put the raft out into a nice calm bit of water. Like, I'm not seeing any white water right now. That's good. And you, off you go. And the, the guide has said, hey, I want some strong people up in the front. You're not sure why, but that'll become obvious a little bit later on. And so off you go. And then the water gets a little bit frothier, gets a little bit wider. The current picks up. You're bouncing up and down, still kind of fun. People still kind of smiling. Maybe that's class one, class two. I don't know my rapid classifications at this point. But pretty soon, you start getting what you paid for. Pretty soon, you hit the class four. And suddenly, those people that were in front of you are now like three feet higher than you. And you look back to the guide for some kind of reassurance, and the guide's three feet lower than you. And you're like, this is not good. And the guide is saying something. You're trying to make it out. And he's actually not saying. He's yelling. He's yelling, paddle, 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 paddle. And so everybody's paddling, paddling. So he says, you know, we're coming up to dead man's drop. And you're like, dead man's drop. I don't want to do that. And he gets you around the curve so that you are not a casualty and now you actually have something that you can enjoy and say, that was really fun. And uh, I'm glad I did it, even though I was kind of scared when I was doing it. And then he says, around the next bend, we got, uh, we got Little Niagara Falls coming up. But now, what, what, you know, the, the point is, we need somebody who's been there. Somebody who knows what's, what we've been going through. Somebody who has been through it worse than what we will experience. And that's Jesus. That he is our guide. He is the one that we can connect to out of a place of mercy. 
When you think of pilgrimage, you think a pilgrimage is a journey of limits. If I'm on the Camino de Santiago, 500 miles, I'm only going to make so many miles per day. And that's by design. In this life, we only make so much progress per day. We'd like to go faster. Americans, we love to just be at the destination. Who needs the journey when I can just get there now? How many of you have this sort of secret pride that you could drive 10, 10 hours without stopping? No bathroom breaks for anybody in your car. No Starbucks. Maybe it's just me. Uh, no, that's, but we, we just want to get to places. We just want to get to the destination. But the pilgrimage is, Lord, I am, you are with me along the way. You're the one who leads me. You're the one who tells me when it's time to rest. You're the one who says I can go a little bit farther even though I feel really tired. You're the one who says, don't worry about this mystery. I will get you through it. And the reason Jesus can do all that is because he has done that. He didn't know all that his heavenly father would have for him, but he trusted in him. He knew that when he was fatigued and tired, those were times where the Lord used, uh, his heavenly father used that for amazing miracles. Think the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus knows what it's like to go those extra miles. Jesus knows what it's like to need sleep. Jesus knows what it's like to grieve. It's amazing. He goes to... In John, he's, he's going to heal and heal. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he knows this and he tells his disciples this. And yet when he gets there, he weeps. Confronted with death, with the loss of his friend, still had the power, still had the sting for somebody that he knew he was going to bring resurrection to, for him who was going to bring resurrection. Our pilgrimage is a journey of limits. Our pilgrimage is still done under the shadow of death, but with Jesus comes life, with Jesus comes resurrection, with Jesus comes alternate plans. Jesus, when he's dying on the cross, says to his mother, mother, behold your son, and son, behold your mother, making a new life for her with John, his disciple. He wasn't going to be with her. He would be raised from the dead, but he wasn't going to be able to care for her. He makes an alternate arrangement for her. So our pilgrimage with the Lord is a journey of limits. He knows what we need. If we would follow him, the faithful guide, he, we will see him get us safely through it. And I say that and as I was thinking and praying through this. I mean, just as a fairly smallish community, there's a lot going on for us right now. There, there's grief over the loss of loved ones. Tanya's brother, some of us were able to go to her memorial last weekend. Uh, people have dreams that have died. Illness has emerged. Some of you have friends or family members that are really battling stuff. Vicky and I had a, uh, have a really good friend of ours from college and just got news on Friday that she uh, is dealing with an aggressive cancer. It's like, there, there wasn't, when we heard that, we prayed, but there wasn't much to say. What do you say? Just like, Lord, you're my guide. You're the one who takes me. I, I don't know, I don't like this part of the journey. This isn't part of the pilgrimage that I really want to be on. And yet we know that he will faithfully take us through that, though we don't always know how. Each day that God gives us is part of this sacred journey, part of this pilgrimage, part of this design that he has for our life. He loves us and everything he does will be used uh, in ways that we don't know fully. But at some point, as we're on this pilgrimage, 
we know that we're heading for a country of our spiritual birth, a place that we've never seen at this point, but which once we get there will be beyond description. And it's only when we arrive, and we only, when we get there, that we fully realize that every hardship, every heartache, every challenge had its purpose. And that Jesus was with us every step of the way. Jesus the man, Jesus the human, Jesus the Christ, who was made just like us in every way, yet without sin. My prayer today, and my prayer for us in this week ahead, if you're in a small group, you'll see it in those notes. It's like, Lord, help me understand the part of the pilgrimage I'm on right now. Help me, if I'm digging in my heels or holding back, what is that? Don't let me do that. Help me go where you're leading. If it's time to rest, then help me rest. If it's time to move forward, help me do that. So my prayer is that he would give us discernment and we would know how much he loves us and how much he truly understands us because he is like us. Amen.